a 19-year-old boy on trial for murder. Twelve angry men that represent not a jury of his peers, but a nameless tribune elected to be arbiters to the damned. I don't know. It's all been said. Talk here forever. It's still the same thing. These men are all more than content to send the defendant to his grave when, unexpectedly, breaking from the general consensus of the room, juror number eight raises his hand, a vote for not guilty. And it's this single action which serves as the proverbial spark that lights the powder keg. But we go on to witness over the course of the next 84 minutes, an overly hot New York County courthouse is a suffocating experience that comments not just on the temperature of the room, but the temperature of its individuals as well. As a simple question of guilty or not guilty is enough to make men sweat. The old man saw him right there on the stairs. What's the difference how many seconds it was? This movie's free-flowing approach to depicting emotion through conversation is immediately made apparent. It hangs over the jury's every word and action with a dynamism that's claustrophobic. It's the reason why it's so difficult to determine where one scene ends and another begins. There's this constant energy radiating throughout the members of the jury that flows from a bold gesture to a raised voice that works in both capturing our attention as audience members and detailing truth central to their relationships as jurors on the case. In fact, we learn about the facts of the case entirely through the jurors. A 19-year-old impoverished boy, a strained relationship with his father, the victim, and overheard violent threats corroborated by various neighbors. The evidence is presented so damningly that we might feel like a juror ourselves, just as ready to give into the automatic mental processes of assigning guilt in a way that 11 other men are initially so eager to stomach. It's not until juror number 8 retorts, throwing the concept of swift justice out of balance, that the unyielding truth is revealed from the pretense of falsehoods. The truth that we are an unreliable juror. That we as the audience haven't sat through court deliberations or heard the facts of the case from an unbiased third party, if such a thing even exists. Because of this, we are at the whims of the emotions in the room and the personal biases that these men have spent years embodying within their character. What does this do? Well, it reframes the courtroom drama as something we are no longer active participants in, asking us to not be a juror ourselves, but to attempt to understand the perspectives of these 12 angry men in wicked concert with the framework of the law. We have nothing to gain or lose by, by our verdict. This is one of the reasons why we are strong. We should not make it a personal thing. We quickly notice how different these men are from their own personal biases. Take Juror 10, whose initial sly remarks at the defendant's upbringing turn to racist vitriol in a later explosive turning point. Or Juror 3, whose strained relationship with his own son informs his biases against the one on trial. From men who see a little bit of themselves in the defendant to men who couldn't be bothered with the case either way, many of these jurors occupy a space of not truly seeking justice or truth as their elected position has called upon them to do, but instead are men hellbent on vehemently defending their positions in response to their character. Unable, or at the very least untrained, to separate that which is personal from what under the letter of the law should be an entirely impersonal decision. And it speaks to how the legal framework of the court can often give way to spectacle. We see it so often in courtroom dramas, judges calling for order, an audience rowdy at revelatory truths brought forth by hollering lawyers, even our own obsession with true crime. In Twelve Angry Men, the same sort of spectacle, 
the same sort of gamification of the law and those who fall victim to it is entirely present. In a room full of flip-flopping positions and ball games to get to and teams made up of individuals whose biases fuel one another's, we're constantly bombarded with this notion that the case is simple. It's open and shut. It's a waste of our time, even. When Juror 8 continues to reveal... It's anything but. This boy's been hit so many times in his life that violence is practically a... It's a normal state of affairs with him. I just... I can't see two slaps in the face provoking him into committing murder. It may have been two too many. Everyone has a breaking point. The unraveling begins slowly. The switchblade used in the crime, first lauded for its supposed uniqueness as a murder weapon, begins to lose its ironclad status. Becoming brittle as juror number eight is able to reproduce an identical switchblade from his pocket in dramatic fashion. Where did that come from? It's the same knife. Juror number nine, respecting juror eight's motives towards continual discussion of the case past the surface facts, joins his quickly grown course of not guilty pleas. This gentleman has been standing alone against us. Now, he doesn't say the boy is not guilty, he just isn't sure. A passing train at the scene of the crime once re-referenced by the jurors destroys the fabric of one witness's testimony. The question of infrequent eyeglasses use dismantles another. All this broiling tension of unreliable witnesses and 15 seconds is too short and our faulty recollection of events is overwhelming enough to make a man say, words that don't comment on true intent but internalized unbridled rage that so often extends from our personal lives into the impersonal, impossible task of judging a man. The mantra of beyond reasonable doubt looms over our legal strictures heavily, but what's reasonable? when the matter you're discussing is life and death. For many, to consider what's reasonable is to ensure the death of coincidence, but our life is filled with coincidence, that extends from the mundane to the extraordinary events that change and shape our existence forever. And when thrown at the mercy of strangers, we can only hope there's someone, anyone, that views our human life as valuable enough to at least be worth discussing for more than five minutes. I don't know about the rest of them, but I'm getting a little tired of this yakety-yakking back and forth. It's getting us nowhere. So I guess I'll have to break it up. I changed my vote to not guilty. Mind Theater is a solo effort producer written by me, Aoaking Bade. For updates on the show as well as my other content, follow Mind Theater Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. If you want to show monetary support, the Kofi link is in the show notes. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time.